You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When we try to make sense of the world, narrative is everything. And when we tell the story of theology in late modernity, we underestimate at our peril how important the stories are that surround the practice. Is Theologia the beleaguered and aging protagonist striving valiantly, but perhaps in futility, to keep up with science and social theory, her younger and more fit successors and rivals? Is theology the old dog who reluctantly learns new tricks, only to find out that who she was in days past, inferior to what she could have been? Or is theology the mother that the younger sciences disown, only to discover that they find their own true future selves, only by returning home to learn the wisdom of days gone by? John Milbank's 2013 book, Beyond Secular Order, sets out to tell the story of philosophy, medieval and modern, and Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled to have him on the show today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Milbank. Thank you very much, Nathan. Great to be with you. Well, this book uh, is a series of brief chapters in two sequences, one on modern ontology and the other on political ontology. Early in, this, early in the sequence on modern ontology, you insist that philosophy as a practice always has had religious roots and that the conception of philosophy as religiously neutral has religious roots itself, that concept does. Yes. Tell our listeners for a few moments what text you would marshal to support those claims and why those claims are important for Christians thinking about philosophy. Well, I'm not sure how easy it is to to point to specific texts, but I think that um, a lot of scholarship, particularly I, I'd mention uh, Eric Verglin, but also more recently Pierre Addo, um, has wanted to point out to us that um, antique philosophy, so you know what we call philosophy comes basically from the ancient Greeks, and th- these people were not like modern philosophers, sort of sitting behind a desk, you know, um, dealing with abstruse problems of logic in a very sort of dusty, donnish kind of way. On the contrary, they were in a way more like monks, you know, even the materialists. They they were living in communities and they were trying to change their ways of life. They were had kind of patterns of spirituality, um, mm. if you like. And um, the, the you know the question is how we got to an idea of a more autonomous philosophy. And uh, Addo's idea is mainly that um, Christians, when they were reading Aristotle and Plato and the Stoics and that, all those people, they they couldn't embrace a pagan spirituality that involved you know lots of gods and dubious practices, um, religious practices, as far as Christians were concerned. So they, they kind of, as it were, sieved off the thought um, and created this less spiritualized philosophy. But actually, even that's not quite true, um, as Olivier Boulmer ha- has more recently pointed out, because even um, in the medieval period, where you get uh, really primarily... <laughs> The idea of an independent philosophy is more um, preserved in Arabic countries. Mm. Um, So, you know, particularly people like Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, that we came to know as Avicenna, and later on Ibn Rushd, whom we know as Averroes. 
these people were doing plotting. They were doing, although they were Muslims, uh, you know, they sort sat quite loose to sort of mainline Islam. And in many ways, they were preserving not just philosophy, but elements of a kind of pagan spirituality, which took the form not of sort of worshipping a pantheon and of gods, certainly not, but nonetheless a powerful sense um, of the planetary intelligences, who are kind of like deities, mm -hmm. and that philosophy was achieving a sort of unity with cosmic order, and that the, the philosophy was aiming towards a kind of natural beatitude that is, is, a, is essentially a spiritual practice. So when when we start to think of the Christian West, the medieval Latin West, um, initially um, the, 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 there is there is not much distinction of theology and philosophy. In fact, the word Christian philosophy is used, the phrase Christian philosophy is used just as much more, in fact, than theology. They don't really talk about theology until we get to Abelard. Mm -hmm. um, but in in effect, that you could say somebody like Augustine, you know. Um, is saying there's now a Christian philosophy. So, you know, there was a pagan philosophy, there was a pagan spirituality, a pagan religious practice, um, and now there's, there's a Christian philosophy, you know, linked to the Bible. And, mm -hmm. you know, the pagans often had their, their oracular texts. And all that kind of carries on into well into the Middle Ages. You know, there's no real division of philosophy and theology. If, if people talk about philosophy, what they have in mind is more something more like a set of techniques, um, an organon, you know, things like logic and dialectics and, and, and rhetoric and grammar that are very, very useful for uh, finding out how to read the Bible. Um, so, but but there, there isn't a strong sense of philosophy as something like an independent metaphysics, or what we now call an ontology, or a, a theory of knowledge, an epistemology, all that kind of only erupts when they when they discover the the Arabic engagement with Aristotle, and with various Neoplatonic writers. And uh, as I say, you know, in, in the Arab world, philosophy was relatively independent. And I suppose. Um, then what happens, um, uh, 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 what, what, you know, why should that have also influenced the Christian world? This is a really, really interesting question. I'm not sure anybody knows the complete answer, but I think you could say that confronted with um, a religion claiming a new revelation, you know, Judaism's not a problem because we accept, they just, we accept the Old Testament, but they just don't accept the new. Islam is much more problematic. You know, there's a new revelation being claimed after the time of Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate. So maybe, you know, you reckon with this other monotheism by saying, well, we can recognize the sort of philosophical claim. You know, we can recognize the philosophical monotheism. But I think much more strongly than that, I think that there was a, the, a need to combat Cathar and other heresies. And Cathars were people who were denying that the world is created by the good God. They were saying the world's created by an evil God. They were dualists. And so there was a, you know, and the Cathars were dominating the south of France and lots of other places. And there was, St. Dominic was trying to fight them. And there was a perceived need to assert the goodness of the created order, I think. Mm -hmm. So in that context, um, you know, insisting that the world is naturally good, that you can see from the create natural order, the creation, you can see, you can infer to God, 
um, that that seems to be beneficial. And it's not an accident that, you know, really St. Albert the Great, the first, um, you know, the first person really introduced this new Greco-Arabic learning with the, you know, the Pope's backing. Um, you know, the mission is really continuing St. Dominic's mission. St. Albert is a, a Dominican. And, you know, to, to stand up for the goodness of creation. So I think it, in that context, the emergence of a more independent philosophy affirming the goodness of creation had its place. But the going on, there continued to be many, many tensions and ambiguities. Um, for example, it, it remains the case that um, it seems as if sometimes philosophy can be an independent um, an independent religiosity in a way we find very hard to understand today. So, for example, very often in the Middle Ages, people would claim that philosophy began in an original revelation to mm-hmm. figures like Hermes Trismegistus, and sometimes Hermes Trismegistus was related back to Noah. And so this idea there's a sort of a hidden link between Moses and Plato you, that is very strong in the Renaissance. You all, all, already get that in the, in the Middle Ages. And also, equivalently, there's a very, very strong claim that philosophy exists in the Bible. So there's a kind of revelation of philosophical wisdom to Solomon, for example, in the, in the idea of Oregon. So again, you know, today theologians talk as if it, about the boundaries between philosophy and theology in a way no medieval thinkers really would have, would have used at all. And... and um, also, this idea of a link between, you know, philosophy and a kind of cosmic mysticism, a kind of, you know, we identify with the wisdom of the intelligences that move the planets, mm. that's still there. It's very strongly there in Albert the Great. And, um, you know, the, the, in, in the case of Aquinas, it's much, much more integrated with, back with theology. Um, there's, there's much less strong sense um, of a kind of independent philosoph- philosophical spirituality and beatitude. But with other thinkers, that that can become very strong. Um, with so-called Latin avarice, people like Sigur Brabant, for example. Um, so that, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, where you've got an independence of philosophy, it's not kind of an independence of philosophical reasoning in the way that kind of neo-scholastics would understand it. It's, it's more like almost a rival way of life, if you like. Right, and right. You, get, you see this in the early Dante as well. And that's precisely why in the series of condemnations from 1270 to 1276, um, this, this kind of thing is really ruled out of court. The church is very threatened by something like a recrudescence of a kind of pagan spirituality long before the renaissance you know this this is what historians are now much more strongly realizing than they used to i think right and i've read in a a few places and i don't have the sources Mm. ready to memory uh that thomas aquinas to a large extent staved off as you said i mean and i guess a resurgence of that sort of pagan spirituality rooted in neoplatonic worship of the intelligences so i mean that's something that well, certainly i've seen uh, in the yeah, history we yeah we need to be careful about you know using i mean what we're the 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 this this question of um the intelligences and so on 
um, it, it's it's encouraged by fusion of Averroes, who's actually very strict Aristotelian, mm-hmm. with some Neoplatonic elements taken from the Liber de Causis. Now, Aquinas still has all those influences, and he has very, very strong um, Neoplatonic elements. But um, Aquinas, compared to, say, uh, some of Albert's pupils, insists very strongly that the intelligences and the angels are identical. <laughs> Okay. 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 <laughs> um, um, but but that in itself is is complicated because it can mean that you are blending this Neoplatonic sense of intelligences with the angels, whereas somebody like Dietrich of Freiburg, who keeps them much more distinct, is saying, well, there's a natural order of the emanation of the intelligences. It's kind of inevitable. Whereas angels, their role is much freer. Aquinas is blending the two. So the, the, the deep ambivalence is here. You know, mm-hmm. there is no simple, this is more Christian kind of. Uh, I'm afraid there's no nice Bible college conclusion to come to here. <laughs> you you right. have to make out your own mind. Uh, I, I think Aquinas is right. And Aquinas, but the point is that Aquinas is achieving um, a kind of, I think, a kind of integration of the philosophical legacy and the biblical legacy that comes from the, the you know, the, the the biblical legacy and the philosophical legacy. But but I think in the you know I think in the New Testament itself there's the beginning of that kind of blending of the prophetic and the philosophical. Mm-hmm. But the the point about the real point then about the condemnations of twelve seventy to twelve seventy seven is that did they throw out the baby with the bathwater? So not only are, you know, the people you've talked about, you know, the danger of an independent spirituality around the astrological or quasi-astrological and so on. Not only was that ruled out of court, also many positions in Aquinas were ruled out of court. And many right. positions that go right back to the church fathers that were to do with um, saying there are certain essential necessities within the created order. In other words, there are certain ways in which things have to be because they reflect the eternal nature of God. And God, if he was a good uh, being a good God, could not have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. Whereas after that day, what you get is much more of a sense that the world is, is much more random. It's just the way God has decided it will be, and uh, um, there's not necessarily um, any inherent order in the world other than the way it mm-hmm. happens to be. You know, so the, there's a great there's a great worry about um, you know the, the the freedom and absoluteness and absolute omnipotence of God will be compromised, and so that that is insisted on very very strongly, but mm-hmm. to to such a strong degree that a lot of inherited philosophy is is um is abandoned at that point a lot of aristotelian philosophy and certainly a lot of neoplatonic um philosophy and um instead of that um a much more sort of critical skeptical philosophy is is embraced <laughs> if you like mm. and the strange the strange thing about all that is in is that in one sense um the, something regarded as kind of dangerously modern, you know, this interest in 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 Aristotle, uh, 
Um, and in other writings that were really Neoplatonic, but were associated with Aristotle, like the Liber de Causes. So this, you know, something very modern, uh, in in a way, is is um, is is abandoned. So you know, in some ways, the condemnations are happening supposedly in the name of tradition, but in reality. <laughs> Um, uh, a, a, a patristic tradition is thrown out of thrown out. A lot of it is thrown out at that point, and right. uh, without without you know a strong understanding of um, essences and universals, it becomes quite hard to construe Christian doctrine. For example, um, you know Christ assuming our human nature and transforming it because there is such thing as human nature. If there isn't such thing as human nature for somebody like Ockham, um, Christian doctrine can start to seem quite problematic. And similarly, if you doubt, um, if you think all relations are completely accidental and there's no such thing as a constitutive relations, there's no such thing as a relation that something may be in into something else that is inherent to its nature. It becomes hard to think about the persons of the Trinity mm. who'd been construed since Augustine as substantive relations. So, you know, without a metaphysics, um, this becomes difficult. And I think it's probably more from that point onwards that you get something like a pure philosophy that's not necessarily religious mm-hmm. um, because um, it's it's paradoxically a philosophy that's seen in to be more in the interests of this much more austere voluntarist mode of mode of um, uh, of theology so if you like it's metaphysics completely purged of its own piety you know mm. things like acknowledgement of the good and participation in the good in instead you get um, not just an accentuation of philosophy as a set of logical processes but also alternative metaphysics um, right. that that are that don't really have much of a role for things like um, you know, theses that being is inherently good, true, and beautiful, and so on. You know, it's just saying thing. There are only individual things that exist. You know, and they are they're not connected to each other. The world becomes completely disconnected, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, even our even our knowledge is just the evidence we now have starting to be the evidence we have about the facts of the world in terms of the way our mind happens to work and whether that is true or not mm-hmm. um, starts to become rather doubtful you know right. it, it, it needs God to guarantee that it's true or God or, 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 or God may have just said, lead our minds to work in a certain way for pragmatic reasons that, mm-hmm. that kind of consequence starts to follow so I think that you 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 do you do in the end only get an independent philosophy at the point where um, yeah the, the 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 sort of more religious elements within Greek philosophy have been purged for the kind of reasons I'm talking mm-hmm. about, and also I think because the other reason would be it's at the point where. Um, there's a related development and people are starting to insist much more on the separation of of nature and grace because it's rather similar. They're saying, well, creation is one thing, grace, you know, God decides 
to create. He might or might not have given us grace. Uh, he happens to have done. And so the natural order and the order of grace become separate from each other. And then philosophy studies the order of nature. Whereas in the legacy of the Church Fathers and up to Aquinas and so on, at least this is the way I read Aquinas, other people read him differently, but they're completely wrong. Um, so, um, you know, up to Aquinas, um, the, there was the idea that um, the ultimately, you know, our natural ends to be, uh, you know, to live uh, as, as a certain kind of animal or to live politically in cities or to use language and so on. These are subordinate to the one supernatural end, mm-hmm. um, which we require, even though paradoxically it's only given by grace. So, in fact, Aquinas is quite clear that um, in many texts that... Um, without grace, there would be no divine government of the cosmos. There would be, um, you know, that spirit, you know, spiritual creatures, humans and angels, they are spiritual because they're ordered to the beatific vision. Um, mm. Without this, they would not be spiritual creatures. And without spiritual creatures, there would be no order in the cosmos because the cosmos has to return to God in, in worship. It can only do that through spiritual creatures. So if, if you read Aquinas carefully and not just selected texts and look at the whole picture, it is quite clear that you need grace for the governance of the cosmos in Aquinas. So, um, you know, so this is a holistic, it's an integralist vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that that starts to get undone. And so long as you have that kind of vision... Um, there isn't a very sharp separation between philosophy and theology, you know. So Aquinas makes some separation. You know, he talks about um, metaphysics independently from the, the revelation of the Bible. But what, what, it, what he says is that metaphysics is about being, and you can only understand being in terms of the causes of being, but mm. metaphysics itself the causes of being is not really its subject. Its subject is being. And it can it tries to start talking about the causes of being, but it can only do that in a very weak, approximate kind of way. So um, to get to know about the causes of being, which are God, but also, incidentally, angels, um, something that people tend rather to lead out, leave out of reading Aquinas now, but um, primarily God, but mediated by angels. So um, you know, to really find out about God, you need revelation. You need God, um, and revelation is not sort of God sort of throwing us a few scraps of information. It's God re- revealing to himself much more of his own internal life. Um, he, it's, it's God bringing about a stronger level of participation in his own life. And, of course, he does that the opposite way around by actually becoming incarnate by actually you know in a sinful world he can only reach us by coming into this world uh, as a baby as we're about to celebrate you know mm-hmm. uh, and this is why it's still in a funny kind of way at the center of our lives still for secular people you know that mm-hmm. and people still feel this in a way that god actually enters into the world to to transform it he discloses to us his inner nature and um, he, he, he illuminates our minds further so that he raises our, our natural powers of, of reason. So, um, you know, this, this, I think the Middle Ages thought that this totally transformed wisdom or our ability to understand things. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
it's surprisingly difficult to get over the echoes of notions like Trinity, Incarnation, Sacrament, the Church. I think all our secular thought is really still pervaded by these notions. You know, right, and we, that's we, one of the... Uh, yeah, that's you one know, of the we have fragments of your... left. You know, mm-hmm. it's like Chesterton. You know, the world is full of Christian ideas gone mad. You know, we, right, right. Uh, but this is what we're really left with. I mean, for example, Alan de Libra has shown that you know even our our notion of talking about the human agents, um, or, um, or or um, or talking about the the human agent as a subject, the subject as an agent somehow combines the Aristotelian sense that um, thinking is rooted in the underlying animal substance with the the Augustinian sense um, that that we're really an independent, intelligent agent. So Aquinas makes it both kind of the act of an animal and yet something transcending an animal. And even today, we talk about subjects and agents. And Delibera shows we only do that because Aquinas and others made those sorts of moves, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And we're, co- we're totally unaware of this. And this is, this is right down at the level of ordinary, everyday discourse. Right. And, the, and that's one of the strong points <laughs> yeah. of this book is that you can tell yeah. throughout that modern philosophy is not a move beyond medieval philosophy. But as you've just outlined in some detail, the basic contours of modern anti-Thomist philosophy, I'll call it, uh, yes. are really playing out some of the core disputes that were already happening Absolutely. in the 12th and 13th I, and 14th I think centuries. So. I, and I think, I, you know, I'm not eccentric in doing this. I think increasingly um, scholars are talking about our long Middle Ages mm-hmm. that we may still be within, and um, they are increasingly sort of breaking out of the Middle Ages to mm-hmm. to trace these genealogies back, you know, so that... Scholastic philosophy is not just something back in the Middle Ages. It continues to shape our, our thought, you know, right mm-hmm. into the 19th century in, in in lots of ways. And yes, as you, you've already intimating, and, and I, I, you know, some of the things, what, what I've been trying to say is that at the end of the 13th century, in these condemnations, mm-hmm. one mode of doing theology and philosophy in the Middle Ages was to some degree outlawed um, or became difficult to do. And and in some ways, that wasn't the old-fashioned tradition. In some ways, that was the modern sexy tradition um, that got got outlawed. And, and, And so what started to dominate from that point on was much more traditions, not exclusively, but mainly associated with the Franciscan order, um, that are a much more rationalistic and yet also fideistic and voluntaristic, much more making a separation uh, between reason and will, nature and grace, and, and so on. So, first of all, the traditions of Duns Scotus, then the traditions of, of William of Ockham. And uh, in many ways, it's, so you, could, you can start to say that the, the modernity we have is the triumph of one half of the Middle Ages would be a hyperbolic way of putting it, but nonetheless mm. not completely untrue, I think. Right, and one of those mm. triumphs that I think our listeners will be especially interested in mm. is your critique of a movement away from metaphysical identification with Christ. And one of the things that you note is that we've yeah. been left in the wake of that move with, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, an elusively sentimental 
person, personal relationship to Jesus, close quote. Say a little bit about the disclosure of the Trinity in the saved person that you offer as a far more satisfying notion of the relationship between the faithful and the Savior. Um, well, I, I guess that, you know, what, I, what I'm talking about strongly here is the notion of, you know, what Augustine called the totus Christus, or the idea of um, the body of Christ, that we're, um, we're you know, that the, the Christ has taken on our human nature, he's changed our human nature, um, he, he continues in some sense, to be incarnate through his body, which is 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 the church, and mm. um, um, therefore we are, um, yeah, we're we're sort of it's, it, you know our relationship to Christ is not just in some remote corner of our lives, you know that that, um, and it's not a matter of simply trying to be. Um, a very good human being like Christ was. It's, it's much more as if God and man have come together in Christ and mm. that the Godhood is now, thanks to that, God is still now mediated through human society um, through because the church has changed everything. So it, 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 he, in, through all the ambivalences, if you like, and that's why I think there is no kind of, for Christians, there isn't or shouldn't be, there often has been, there is no kind of spiritual escapism, you know. Right, right. Which doesn't mean that you can't go into a monastery, because a monastery is not an, understood properly an escape at all. But um, it is an attempt to reconfigure human society and our human relation to nature and, and everything like that. But um, I think that you... you um, yeah, we can't sort of go off into um, another separate spiritual realm or try to be completely pure, um, uh, removed from the mediation of um, all our um, social, social cultural structures, if you like. And I think, you know, one of the dangers in some forms of spiritual Franciscanism is that they're trying to do just that, that mm -hmm. they are trying to get out. So instead of the idea that, you know, that the mediation of Christ is, is through um, the whole body of Christ and that, you know, that the, some false ideas of Jesus as representing us suggest, you know, a detachment from, from participation, you know, that he's simply offered instead of us. But um, we are offered with Christ, if you like, you know, and he has done everything for us, but we have to participate in that. We have to take it on, you know, we have mm -hmm. to, in a sense, repeat it. It's irreducibly a gift, but it Irredu is a gift of a yes. way of life. Yes, it's irreducibly a gift. It's 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 not something we can perform, but we have to receive that gift, mm -hmm. you know, and we have to actively receive that gift, I, th I think. Right, right. And that leads to the question of mm. divine will and human will. And I, wa I want you to talk just a moment about two philosophical con uh, concepts, uh, again, in this sequence on modern ontology. One of them is the distinction between concursus and influentia in, yeah. the, in the question of providence. And the other one uh, is the distinction between an ontology of actuality 
and an ontology of potentiality. It seems to me that yeah. these two things just shoot through so much of modern philosophy. You want to say yeah. that because we are still having medieval contests, there are yeah. still better ways to think of those. Tell us about those ways to think about them. Yes, well, to, be, to begin with the question of causality, it's, it's very simple. Like, let, me, let me put the this way, that you know, Christians, especially since early modern times, have had a lot of rather maybe unedifying debates about grace and free will and, um, and so forth. Uh, and often it seems to me these debates um, arise because people won't accept that God's causality now and other causalities are on completely different levels, you know. Mm -hmm. So to affirm God's causality is not to deny secondary causality, you know, in nature that there are all kinds of causalities at work. Um, and, you know, to think of God's causality is not to say that they override those causalities. And similarly, when it comes to human causality, which involves freedom, you know, God isn't qualifying our freedom um, even when he's fully determining things. So I think the point is that God's causality and creative causality are not in competition, nor are they in straightforward collaboration. You know, in other words, it's not like, you know, God's causality and creative causality, including our causality, it's not like two horses pulling a barge, if, right, if you like. Right, right, and I remember know. that image from the book. Uh -huh. yeah, um, it's, um, it's like, the, God causes the whole thing, the barge moving, the horses doing their bit, you know. Mm -hmm. So so the, the idea of influencia is, is it's, it, this is a word taken from people like Albert the Great, it's of Neoplatonic providence, providence, sorry, um, and it suggests something flowing in from a, a, um, a, a topmost level, so rather than sort of God cooperating with something else you know god does a bit and we do another bit it's god flows in to transform us completely so god completely determines our freedom and yet it remains free this is a mystery you know we can't mm. understand it we cannot possibly understand how because how a creative cause has the power completely to determine a free act and yet it remains free. You know, mm -hmm. we just have to accept that as a mystery. Right, and, and this is why teaching Boethius to undergraduates is so much fun. And I think I think this is ter <laughs> exactly this is very very important, particularly for Protestants, because I think a lot of Protestants are increasingly realizing that some of the positions of the reformers on you know grace and faith and so on is not quite right because they've inherited this very bad metaphysics you know so even when they think they're just being biblical they're not doing metaphysics you know so often if you think you haven't got a metaphysics you really imbibed a bad metaphysics right, you know? right. I, I think this is the point you know so that and it's actually not biblical at all you know but they've inherited what I call the concursus model uh, about the two horses pulling the barge, you know, mm. and then you get into futile and rather arid kind of debate. Right, and know? I mean, among those is Martin Luther yeah. in The Bondage of the Will saying that exactly. if, we, yeah. if we pull even a little bit, then we diminish God's sovereignty. Exactly, and, and Erasmus is probably nearer the truth, but even he's not right because he's a little bit semi-Pelagian because he's not kind of getting these paradoxes either. You know? Okay, it's, all right. This is this is this is um, the main point, you know, and I think it it applies also to you know issues about about grace and works that um, you know because God God's it it's 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 not an extrinsic it's an inward transformation you know so mm -hmm. grace changes us already you know the younger Luther 
was more like that. The pietists were more like that. You know, there is, we can't have faith without charity. You know, this, this is biblical. And I think sometimes the reformers are too much in danger of making faith more important than charity, which is just not true to the New Testament, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's, yes, but I think even, even when it comes to sort of thinking of imminent things within this world, sometimes there are, there are causalities are operating at different levels. And I think, you know, modern physics makes this clear as well. And even in, even in politics, we sometimes need to see how, um, you know, there's no clash between the fact that uh, there's a wider, higher influence going on and yet also a sort of lower down influence, if you like. It's a bit like, it's a bit like somebody teaching somebody and enabling them to learn for themselves, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, it's, right. it's more than just cooperation. It's both what the teacher is doing and what the pupil is doing, if, if, if you like. And it's, mm-hmm. I think in the political sphere, we often need, we need the guidance of the wise. And yet the guidance of the wise is precisely what enables us to make good decisions, well-informed decisions in a democratic kind of way. Right. Or on the other side of that coin, I mean, in a more Marxist vein, you know, there's no reason to deny the the power of forces like supply and demand and market this and that. But at the same time, there also is a place for human agency and to say that these people are doing things. Exactly. That's a very good example that, you know, there are, there are sort of structural causes, mm-hmm. if you like, and yet that doesn't deny that there are also agency going on. Yes, that, okay. that's good. Um, I, and uh, then the second thing was about possibility and actuality. And I think yes. you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, I think, um, I don't say this in the book, but I think that, um, Avicenna made a big leap forward by sort of saying there's a distinction between existence and essence. But I think Avicenna never meant to totally separate the two, nor did much less Thomas Aquinas. But the the danger of saying that you can think of an essence completely without existence um, is that you get a sort of paradox of an existing essence, or inversely, you get the, pas- the paradox of an essentialized existence. So what I mean by this is, mm-hmm. I ca- you can't really say what a book is without knowing about actual books, you know. Um, and nor can we think about an existence of a book without thinking about what a book is. And we can't think about naked existence without saying, uh, existence is always the existence of something. Right. And, and our primary point of reference um, for understanding the nature of anything is, a, is an actual experience of something. That, so this remains true, even though like Aquinas, like Avicenna, we can recognize you know, the book might not be there, it might not exist. You know, we could mm-hmm. imagine it not existing because we're not God. So the point is, you know, God exists of his very nature. His very nature is to exist. But in creatures, you know, existence and essence are separate. But I, I think the it's a misreading of Aquinas to think that one is more primary than the other. Or that because they're distinguishable, they are totally totally separable mm-hmm. um, and I think on the contrary it's much more the danger of the so-called formal distinction in SCOTUS to think of the two as separate to start thinking I mean I'm 
grossly simplifying, but I have to uh, for the show. The, the, to start thinking of possibilities as things that somehow exist in abstraction from actualities, because once you've gone down that road, um, you're you're going in the direction of thinking that um, everything is kind of predetermined. Um, mm. in like some sort of computer code, some some kind of cosmic computer code. Either that, so you're either thinking like that, or at the same time, you're also thinking, um, well, what comes into it, it, what, which possibilities we realize just depends on an act of will, you know. Mm. Right. But whereas if you think in terms of the primacy of actuality, then you're less likely to say, well, everything's arbitrary, because everything, in fact, ha- has a nature. And yet, at the same time, this is, this is where it's kind of subtle and complicated. You're also not going to say, well, it's predetermined, you know. So mm. things have a shape, but they don't have a shape because a sort of non-existent shape has forced its way into being, or because it's just been arbitrarily decided that way. You know, so if you think about trees and the shapes trees have and the patterns and formations they have, you know, um, that belongs to them. There is no treeness without it. It's the primacy of form, or what Goethe or von Balthasar calls Gestalt, if you like. Mm-hmm. It's it's the mystery of actuality. You know that. So there's a sense in which it's almost a very simple way to put this. It's it's almost like the primacy of a work of art. That if you have a work of art. You can't reduce it to a formula, a recipe, you know. Right. It, it, um, or even if you have a really great dinner, you can't reduce it to the recipe the cook had to make it. Um, it, it so it's the primacy of the work of art or, or the dish it, itself. And it's, it's not just a matter of willing either. The artist or the cook was kind of guided by what she was trying to achieve. She was, she in a way, um, the artist is, disclosing something it's disclosing a form that that if we feel it's beautiful it has a certain rightness about it a certain truth about mm-hmm. it you know so um that that's the primacy of actualism and um it's not quite the same as an existentialism because actually it's um it's also insisting on the actuality of of, a, of an essence you know, mm-hmm. it's insisting that essence and existence aren't completely separate from each other. To some degree, we you could say in God they completely coincide, and yet we participate in their connection. It's it's that way I would put it. Right, the, right. The, the Aquinas doesn't quite say that, but I think you can infer that. And mm-hmm. um, or somebody like Shivara in Alalogirentis recently brilliantly translated by some of my friends i think i think that's um you know he he gets this as the he gets this as well so i think the primacy of actualism is very very important because i think the modern world is dominated by the idea that it's really sort of formulas that are in charge formulas plus acts of arbitrary will it also has a relationship i think to cosmology because um if you think that the world is um has ju- is just completely random that it's just it's just accidentally evolved to be the way it is to, you know so if if you're if you deny the idea and i 
it's reasonable to do so. If you say, well, we can't really say this world is governed by a set of laws because um, the, the laws are just the habits of this world. They're just connected to the habits of this world, if you like. We can't, we can't empirically say more than that. Um, but it, if you deny that there is intelligence at work in those habits, um, then I think you're forced to say, well, there are lots of posi- there are hundreds and hundreds of possible worlds, you know. So mm-hmm. the the primacy of possible, you know, atheism is very linked to the primacy of possibility, right. you know, because right. um, because you're, you're, you're well, anything is possible, and therefore maybe everything is instantiated somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting that at that point, atheism gets into the realms of fantasy. You know, we, we, there's no, no evidence that well, there's sure. any I mean, other that's world. Cer- that's certainly a there's greater no metaphysical flight than to say that Absolutely. the world is creation. Yeah, and you get into possible worlds metaphysics, but mm-hmm. we don't know that there is any other world than our world. And, you know, so the alternative speculation is to say, well, it, it, if our world exhibits certain regular habits, then maybe this is an intelligence at work. Not really so much in the sense of intelligent design, but the, in, in the first place, there's a kind of imminent intelligence at work, like in keeping with the Bible saying that, you know, wisdom is the first created of God's works. You know, right. wisdom is at work behind the world. Sophia is at work. You know, there's, and, and it's at that point that, you know, maybe this stuff about the mysticism of the intelligences is not so completely stupid, you yeah. see. <laughs> uh, but of course, ultimately, that wisdom is the creator God. But but the point is that it's if if you're not kind of a voluntarist, God's not completely outside the world. He's also imminent. He's also acting within the world. You know, the world reflects, uh, the world as a whole reflects in it, in the way it goes, the world as a whole, if you like, is an artist reflecting the artistry of God. That That's the mm-hmm. way I would want to put it, I think. Right. Well, I want to turn the corner to the second division on political ontology. And yeah. one of the points that it makes over and over is that modern notions of right-wing and left-wing share far more philosophical common ground because they're modern yeah, than exactly. either right or left does with pre-modern thought. Yeah, and I'm, right. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's famous preface mm-hmm. to Athanasius, in which he recommends that, in which Lewis, pardon me, recommends that Christians read old books precisely for these reasons. What yes, theological yes. content and which theological maneuvers do you think that 21st century Christians could stand to relearn from medieval and patristic political thought specifically? Um, that's a really interesting question. And I, I think, yes, I mean, I think that the first thing, the point I try to ram home again and again is that most modern conservatisms are just as modern as modern liberalisms or left-wing philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, because modern conservatives tend to insist on authority or some kind of extreme pessimism or sometimes the extreme economic freedom of the individual. They, you know, these are all modern positions. Mm-hmm. And um, what I try to suggest, to put it very briefly, is that... Um, Antique and medieval thought always thought that any political arrangement is how you relate the the one, the few, and the many. How how do you mm-hmm. relate, you know, sovereign architectonic authority to um, the the role of uh, you know many individuals, popular opinion? 
how do you also relate that to the role of an aristocracy or the people, the opinion formers, as we might now, you know, put it today? Sure. And I think that, you know, the pre-modern thought tended to think you any system, those roles will always be in play. Mm-hmm. And they're not wrong. You know, there's still a king in America. He's called Barack Obama. Or any other country in the world. There's, there's still one leader. It's, it's astonishing. You know, it's barbaric, if you like. But, but that's, we, that's the human condition. And, and, you know, there are still people obviously form and shape opinion, and then there's, then there's democracy, you know. And I, but I think ancient thought tended to think that those three are always in play, although, and they tended to think that in some circumstances it might be more appropriate to have one or the other. And they tended to think that, they tended to think, well, if, every, if in a good society where everybody's virtuous, let's be more democratic, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but these are completely different way of looking at it. Whereas we tend today, I think modern thought oscillates between saying there needs to be absolute democracy, you know, or the only principle of legitimation is, is the majority view. Uh-huh. Or, or else the what Rousseau called the implicit general view, which is slightly different. But we're, we're, we're either saying the absolute authority of the many, or, or we have various degrees of, you know, authoritarianism, um, mm-hmm. that we insist on the authority of the one, or we say, you know, we're gonna, we, we, we have to take emergency decisions. You know, it's, it's 9-11. We have to, you know, the, the executive will have to take an emergency decision, you know. Sure. And, and, and it will have to impose that. Um, so that I think we tend to oscillate between um, an absolutism of the many or the absolutism of the one. And I think that the right tends to be about the one, the left about the many, although that can also flip over into the reverse. Oh, sure, so depending on what's expedient reasons. for either factions, ascendants. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, yeah. But I think there is, I think there is that, 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 that oscillation. And I think that what's, what's missing, if you like, is the role of the perceived role of the few understood as the virtuous few, mm-hmm. you know, as the people living a good life who um, should be setting example and creating an influence. But also, I think, um, I think added to that in the Christian era, the sense that there are lots of different minority virtuous practices. There are monasteries, there are mm. friarids, there are guilds, there are um, chivalric associations. There are all kinds of people trying to work out uh, you know, you belong to an order that's pursuing the good in some sense. You're initiated into that order. And these orders have a certain amount of political control and influence. Mm-hmm. And I think that today we lack completely any sense of guidance by the virtuous or the honorable. We also lack this sense of it. We, we, we've tended to get rid of all intermediate associations, you know, so that nothing is legitimate except the authority of the state and the law. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, religious bodies are not allowed to set their own rules, I think, you know, in the name of the, because there's, there's increasingly nothing between the state and the individual. You know, right, and right. I think I think one of the things Christians need to say most of all today is there won't be any freedom, and there won't even be any individual freedom if we don't defend group freedoms, if we don't defend the freedoms that we all have to associate and to some extent form our own rules and shape 
um, shape collectively our, our own lives, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that, you know, from Augustine and Aquinas, one, one can learn this sort of thing. And one can learn it's not so much a matter of going back to some... It's not a conservative nostalgic gesture because it's outside those assumptions, you know, mm. if you like. And and the very sense of tradition in the earlier period is much more of um, a living tradition. And I think, I mean, I think the other thing that we need to, you know, we need to, while on the one hand, I think Christianity is rightly sort of secularized political power, it hasn't directly sacralized the exercise of coercive law in the way that Islam tends to do, mm-hmm. I think, um, which is one reason, you know, why it's, diff- it's, a pro- it's difficult for Islam within modernity. We we still don't know quite how that will play out. But in the case of Christianity, uh, on the one hand, yes, there is that secularizing. But I think if we go back to the pre-modern thinkers will find that there is no absolute distinction, you know, that, that the ultimate source of legitimation is, are you kind of encouraging spiritual ends, you know, so so that you, you ultimately there is an onlook to, in some sense, to the church and the purposes of the church, so that, you know, a, an or, a, a legal order is not directly sacralized, but precisely because it has an onlook towards the order of charity, which is um, about complete reconciliation and forgiveness between human beings and the cosmos, if you like, you know. Mm. And maybe, you know, obviously we now live in a much more pluralistic universe, so a pluralistic political universe. So, you know, we can we can maybe see equivalents of this in 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 other cultures and and other traditions, but right. I think Christians need to have been way too sanguine about secular authority. Well, sure, uh, to, to borrow far that too vocab- sanguine. Yeah, because I think what we're now seeing is that it's going in an anti-Christian direction, an anti-religious direction. That it, you know that it doesn't hold anything sacred. You know, this is why we have torture. It doesn't hold human life sacred. It doesn't hold nature sacred. Mm -hmm. Everything, you know, this is the ultimate nominalism. Everything can be redesigned for the fun of it, you know, like the people in California. You know, let's experiment. Let's turn people, let's have hybrids of machines and uh, Mm -hmm. humans. Won't that be interesting? Right, and to borrow a bit of vocabulary from... Extreme disbelief... Um, in in any essences and any sense mm. that there's anything anything given or sacred at all. So I think it's much it's far harder now to think. Oh yeah, there's this kind of humanism we're all going to agree about whatever we whatever we happen to believe. I don't don't think it's true. Mm. And and uh, so Christians are going to have to. That doesn't mean I know exactly what that means. And you know I'm. By no means am I sort of, you know, I'm saying ultimately we need a Christian vision, but at the same time at the moment I'm trying to write a book with a friend much more addressed to politics in general because I'm trying to, say, talk about the things we can agree on with people of other religions and people of no religion, you know, Mm -hmm. even though maybe I'm, uh, even though in a way I'm saying, well, if you accept these things, you ought to accept these other things. But I still have the sense there's a lot of human decency, and they, a lot of people there who will accept things, some things I want to say, mm. 
even though they don't quite know why they believe that. Because I think there are a lot of people who do think inchoately the good is not something that we just make up, you know. Mm. And I think Christians still have a responsibility to cooperate with all people of goodwill. You know, there's absolutely no question about that, you know. And right. people who have things theoretically right are not necessarily the people who who always who always act in the uh, act in the right way so i think it's very important to distinguish these these levels mm-hmm. and yet n- nonetheless in the end there's something about um you know that christianity has managed to construe the sacred as a belief in an original peace and harmony that can be restored and that mm. that is the final ontological reality and that we we refer all other processes to that and i think I think I think what's very very dangerous and difficult is the fact that you know if if you are a political ruler or if you're a very very powerful corporate leader you have the sense that there's nothing above you you know mm-hmm. and so you can do sure. what you like so if people don't have any sense of the divine above them I think it's fatal I think this is one reason why so often you know, political leaders are more often religious than not religious because it's scary if there's nothing above you, sure, nothing sure. with which you're answerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's a sense in which the ruler is like the it's like King Lear. The ruler is naked on the heath, you know, mm-hmm, sure. not not when he's gone mad, but all the time, you know. Sure. And and, that, and that's why he's in a peculiarly acute existential situation, I think. Right. Well, one of the ancient ideas that you invite your reader to consider is that the function of law is to share the goods of the intellect with those human beings not naturally gifted in political wisdom. And that's a notion that my own students encounter each fall when I teach Plato's Republic. And I was Mm -hmm. glad to see a a philosophically rigorous invitation back to that possibility. In your view, what has modern politics settled for in the place of Plato's vision of the shared intellectual goods that come from good rulership. I think what we what we've got instead is, you know, the power of advertising, the power of spin doctors and the power of money, you know. So I think mm-hmm. that um we you never you never completely abolish uh hierarchy. It's not possible. Um right. you because there's always, you know, because we're born into time, there are always we always have to be inducted into things by people who know more, you know. So, uh, as you know, even Marx points out, you know, hospitals and things like this are necessary hierarchic institutions. You can climb up the hierarchy, you know. Um, but I think that there's a kind of failure to recognize the dimension of time and education that is necessarily, you know, we're learning all the time. You know, even in a job, we're learning from the people above us already in it, and then we climb the ladder, if you like. And you can't abolish that. And I think that the danger is that we think of the political process in a kind of infantile way, you know, as if we suddenly in politics were like the children in Lord of the Flies, that there are no grown-ups. Um, right. We're out there in the wilderness and we're all taking a collective decision. Of course, people think that's precisely because we are grown-ups, but that's the very heart of liberal delusion, in my view. And mm. uh, it's, it's not the case. And what it means is that the kids are led astray, the adult kids, by Pied Pipers. They're led astray by 
spin doctors, by people, manipulators, by people who claiming to give you what you want, but really sort of leading in you into kind of desiring a lot of things that you don't want. You know, so if if you if you fail to have the sense that politics is also part of an educative process, it's about idea, it's about the formation of virtuous people then you will fail to have the sense that for that, you know, for just that reason, politicians need to be virtuous people in the real mm-hmm. sense. It doesn't mean that they're, they're goody-goodies. It doesn't mean that they have exemplary private morality. It means they have the relevant virtues to be politicians. You know, this is what, this is what you know, Roman Republicans, for example, understood very well, and that public education was fitting people for that, that role. Um, and um, so, you know, that this is what we, I think, lack today. And, and uh, because we don't have that, we have, um, you know, what we're dominated by is is media stars or people with awful lots of money. You know, completely empty people who who we who we all land up adulating, and increasingly, you know, even intelligent people and. And the sort of massification of our culture, the popification of our culture, gets ever more extensive. I think and that, um, and and uh, you know, and that's exactly the consequence if you don't have this sense of um, of an aristocratic guidance in the really proper sense, mm-hmm. or else, or else we get the idea of people saying, you know, I'm my legitimacy is simply that I represent what you think. Right, right. Uh, But but the problem, as I say in my book, is quite quickly that's that's a ruse. You know, they will not represent what you think. They will get into power and do what they want. You know, Mm. and and um, because um, you know, well, just representing what people happen to think is is not adequate. You know, supposing what people think is not a good thing to think, for one thing, or um, so, and in, in, in any case, once you're in power, there will be all kinds of things that you don't know what the people think, where well, you do have to decide. And it's at this point that we need the much kind of thicker notion of representation that you referred to earlier in the case of Christological representation. You know, we need to have the sense with our leaders that we are part of a common culture, that we there are we share some kind of horizons of the common good, and therefore they get the general idea of what we want and uh, what we want. You know, legitimate what we want in terms of a virtuous end, and we trust them to be the kind of people who can, um, for themselves, further pursue that end. You know, so that it's. Mm-hmm. It's it's properly a dialectic. It's not and um, it's not about you know when you start talking in these terms, people say this is shocking. You're talking about hierarchy and leadership and stuff like that. And what they don't realise is that I'm protesting against far more naked authoritarianism that we now have. I'm protesting against authoritarianism. Instead, right. you have to have a real dialectic between um, you know guiding educative figures and people responding to them. And there's a constant give and take going on there. Um, and of course, there are degrees and levels and people rise and they develop and um you know there are all sorts of everybody you know it, it, you know there's a hierarchy of plumbers 
you know, there are plumbers sure, and sure. there are apprentices. The, the point is, we need to imbue the whole of life much more with excellence and give everybody mm-hmm. the idea of many more people the sense that they are leaders and people of virtue and setting examples and leading other people on and, and this kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, unless unless we have this sense that there needs to be at every level um, a group of people who are able to debate what the good objectively is, then we can't have democracy because we we don't have people aren't presented with the right questions. They're not present. The democratic debate ought to be about what the good is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, instead of which, we've got people trying to find out what it might be that people really want, you know. Right, um, right. But but people can't decide on the, what they want in a vacuum, you know. Mm-hmm. If if we if we approach it that way, then they will just follow fashion, they will want what other people want, they will act out of my music desire, you know, uh, as Girard has explained, and it will all become poisonous, you know, mm. and you won't have democracy at all. So that, you know, paradoxically, we need to think about the other elements in politics that are not democratic, if we are to have a more functioning uh, democracy, I think. Mm-hmm. That paradox makes sense. Well, I want to I wanna mm. finish with a sort of self-indulgent question. Uh, yours are not by any means the only theology books that require a fair bit of background and careful, painstaking reading. Mm. But your prose style, which so many find challenging, prompts me to ask a question about the church and the academy. Narrate for me how your work stands as a service to the church. And if you wouldn't mind humoring a podcast host, say a little bit as you go about how those of us who popularize high-level academic theology fit into your vision of the church's broader intellectual life? Well, I think, you know, I think their role is completely crucial. I mean, I'm not, I I can be, I think, very dense and hard to follow, um, unless you read closely. And that just seems to be the way I am or the way I've become, and I'm not recommending it. You know, I think <laughs> there, are some, there are some academics who are able to communicate, have the gift of communicating much, much more directly. Mm-hmm. But I, I do also think that it is your prime duty as an academic to try to say the truth. And I think probably people like myself, Ryan Williams, uh, Catherine Pigstock, we, we, we tend to sort of not run away from difficulty, you know, mm-hmm. sure. um, and that's probably sometimes why we're not the, you know, we we're not going to simplify, um, you know, the you know the risk of being complicated or oblique. We mm-hmm. we're not going to run away from that. And I do think, I actually do think that you know there are, there are many other examples of this. I do think it's strangely the case that. People do recognize integrity, you know. I mean, why else would Hegel be influential? Oh, sure, He's sure. almost <laughs> impossible to follow, you know. Um, and I, th- I, think, I think one of the things I found really surprising is that, you know, sort of probably when I was younger, people said, you know, oh, well, you know, this is, you won't, you, you, you won't have any influence, you know, nobody will know what you're saying, you know. But on the contrary, uh, a lot of people I know who are much clearer than I am, but... I'm not saying anything penetrating or new, but, you know, just repeating liberal nostrums, you know, or mm. or, or um, have a, a don't have any influence, you know, because they don't have anything to say or nothing new to say or, 
you know, um, people aren't very interested in the the gospel being watered down and presented in contemporary terms, you know, mm-hmm. or finding a Christian gloss on what people are already doing and thinking and saying. You know, the secular world who who already does think says certain things, you know, they 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 won't be interested in Christ. They'll they'll say, oh great, well you think as we do, you know, and they will read their books. Sure. Whereas I think. Um, the, there's far greater interest in currents like radical orthodoxy, not just radical orthodoxy, but cognate currents, mm-hmm. um, in even the secular world, even amongst people who reject Christianity, they still recognize this is interesting because it's different. And um, I, it's quite surprising in a way, at least within... within the Church of England, in fact, radical orthodoxy has now had very deep influence. I think it's been crucial in fomenting a certain Anglo-Catholic revival in the Church of England, but has also been very influential on the evangelical wing as, as well. Mm. And also has had um, one of the remarkable things that's happening in Britain at the moment is the resurgence of a Christian influence in politics. I don't think this is known about in America, but in both the Conservative and the Labour Party, the so-called post-liberal politics, largely driven by Christians. And radical orthodoxy is not the only force, but one, if not maybe the most central force in that movement, you know. So, in fact, radical orthodoxy had had unprecedented levels of transformative influence in the English church life, and now through that in English political life, you know. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's precisely because a lot of people have done the translation work, you know. I think it's because we haven't operated as low indivi- lone individuals. You know, there is. Right. I'm not just Milbank. There isn't Milbankianism. I'm part of um, an association of people who call themselves radical orthodox, and it's a loose association of people who roughly agree. You know, mm-hmm. and therefore there are lots of us. And then there are there are lots of young people, and we teach them. And there are lots of people translating our thoughts into more simple terms, or working out what it might mean in practice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a collective effort and an ecumenical effort. So I think, you know, I think the point to recognize, sometimes people say, well, you know, you're far too difficult. What, what you know, what do you... I think the point is there are many tasks and it's a collaborative effort. Well, sure, you it's, know, it's the I, one I, and the few and the many played exactly, out in 2014. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's it, yeah. Very good, very good. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Milbank, for coming on the show. No, it's a pleasure. And I want to, to thank our to. listeners for tuning in. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. And this is Nathan Gilmore for Christian Humanist Profiles saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. Amen.